This is the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Welcome along. Welcome back. Welcome. Just welcome. Just welcome. Welcome to Enter Sad Men, episode 18. My name's Steve. I'm joined by Rich and Mark as ever. We're going to look at three albums to discuss this evening. We're going to review them, we're going to rate them, we're going to rank them, and uh, the the idea, the intention is to place them in our Hall of Fame, um, see if these three albums get into it. The rules are fairly vague, based upon pretty much a kind of 25-year window. We look at what we call the golden age of heavy metal and hard rock from 1970 to 95. So we pick three albums from within that time frame, and they've got to be pretty good to get up into the elite that we've, because we're building up a pretty impressive list thus far. So, yeah, 51 albums down. We do three every night. This is episode 18, numbers 52, 53, 54. And this evening's theme is, gentlemen? Well, we asked Tico Torres Tombolo of Topical Themes, and uh, it came up with Donington 1987. The idea was that we each pick an album by a band who were on the bill at that festival in 1987. So the lineup on August the 22nd, 1987, at Castle Donington Raceway, Derbyshire, United Kingdom, were opening the Bailey Brothers. Second on the bill, Cinderella, followed by Wasp, followed by Anthrax, then a little band that no one had heard of called Metallica. Then second headliners were Dio, and headlining 1987 were on Jovi. So we've chosen two of those, and they are. I plumped for Wasps Inside the Electric Circus. I plumped for, yeah, Among the Living by Anthrax. And I plumped for Cinderella's Long Cold Winter. Now, of course, we do these in chronological order of release. And um, yet again, even though you know, I am firmly in the 1980s, I've still got the oldest album. So uh, I will be, start- will be starting it off again. But before we get into it, let's have a little listen, see what we were listening to over the past week and what we're going to be listening to as we talk things through.
Okay, so there's a good flavour of what we'll be talking about tonight. So with no further ado, let's go on to our first album, Mark's Choice and What's Inside the Electric Circus. Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. So... The reason that I chose this was that Wasp had a particularly memorable set that uh, afternoon in a, a way that I think you know, showed uh, huge equality to women. They uh, put uh, a porn star called Lindsay Drew on a rack and then whipped her. So um, we haven't talked about Wasp so far over the last 18 weeks, have we? And it's about time we rolled out the chainsaw codpiece. And we, we had a bit of a laugh, didn't we? Because we were looking at images from that particular show and I... What wasn't Blackie Lawless wearing? Anyway, we'll come on to that. We'll come on to that. Um, Inside, The Electric Circus is the third album by Wasp. It was released in 1986, recorded in July of that year, released in October 1986 on the Capitol label. It was the first Wasp album to be produced by Blackie Lawless. It was the first album where Blackie Lawless was playing rhythm guitar as opposed to bass, and it was recorded at the Pasha Music House Recording Studio in Los Angeles. The um, personnel for this album, Blackie Lawless on vocals and rhythm guitar, Chris Holmes on lead guitar, Johnny Rod on bass and backing vocals, and Steve Riley on drums. The album got to number 53 in the UK charts, spent three weeks on the chart, got to 60 in uh, the United States, uh, and spent 19 weeks on the chart. Uh, interesting fact and some context for what follows now is almost from the point of its release, Blackie Lawless considered this album to be a failure. So, boys, how'd you get on with it? Yeah, a part of Junkie called it, didn't he? Which is curious, but then, you know, anything that Blackie says, you, I think you take with a with a lump of salt. Yeah, I mean, the problem with Inside the Electric Circus is it will always come after Wasp and The Last Command, and therefore, you know, comparisons are often inane, and we, we shouldn't be doing them with what we do, and we don't, because we have to judge these albums on standalone value. But we all know what went before, and it will always be considered less favourable compared to those two, but... I think it's a blast. I've always thought it's a blast. It's not short of missteps. There's a couple of, you know, weak moments. But this is Wasp doing Wasp, and I love it. I think it's brilliant. I think Wasp, for a lot of people, are Marmite, aren't they, in terms of love-hate? And for me, this album left me a bit indifferent, actually. I'll go into some of the details we go through, but assessing it as we are, these albums, sort of in terms of music and mood, it fell a bit flat for me, but I'll talk a bit more about that later. Were you familiar with it before you came to it this week, Richard? As an album, no. The title track, I'd heard Don't Need No Doctor, I'd heard Restless Gypsy before. This was the first time I'd heard it all the way through as an album because i think that's quite interesting both of your views actually because this is my favorite wasp album actually interestingly enough closely followed by the debut album and then the last command i just thought this is really slick really polished had loads of sing-along ability and yeah you're right it's got missteps on it yeah and there are there are one or two moments where you just think the album wouldn't have suffered for not having them having that particular track on it but I think this is really accomplished and really um, tight. I said it's my favourite album. I'm ignoring and forgetting The Headless Children, which is um, a monster album as well, actually. So actually probably probably Headless Children, then this, then the debut album, and then Last Command. And then everything that followed Headless Children was meh. But anyway, for another day. So it opens up with The Big Welcome, which is a spoken intro, followed by 
inside the electric circus. And I think at that point, probably everyone's quite looking forward to what, what's coming because the, it starts off at a fairly blistering rate, doesn't it? We, we are getting wasp, aren't we? Straight, straight from the straight from the get-go, you're thinking, all right, well, the last command is being continued and that's, that's good news for one and all. You know, the, the riffs are classically waspish riffs. Blackie's vocals are on point. The drums, it is driving it along. It's a spot-on, top-notch, slick bit of Wasp action. Sets the sets the stool out now, actually. It's a great track. Yeah, I agree. The flanger guitar at the start, and then it explodes, doesn't it? Looks like it's just a good description of a Wasp gig. But yeah, catchy chorus, really good riffs to start with. Although, what, so one theme of this album for me is, on a lot of songs, the riffs get lost. The vocals dominate. Blackie's vocals dominate all the time uh, and i'll come back to a bit more of that uh, that later but it's a brilliant opener that's the point isn't it i think it was a mistake him producing this because you're absolutely right richard the, the, this is all about blackie really isn't it? it's his band and we're going to hear quite a lot of him and in glorious kind of uh, stereo and everything else is way down in the mix so yeah i agree with that and then of course that is followed by a cover i don't need no doctor uh, which was who was that recorded by well it was made famous by ray charles ray but charles. actually written <laughs> by ashford and simpson you remember Solid at the Rock, Ashford and Simpson? They were massive songwriters for Motown and, and various soul singers. I mean, they, they wrote songs for like Shaka Khan. They wrote the song Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And uh, yeah, so they wrote Don't Need a Doctor, but it was yeah, it was made famous mostly by Ray Charles. I, I like it. They certainly did something different with it. This is not something that you would expect from Ray Charles or indeed Ashford and Simpson. It's all right, but it's dropped a notch from the opening, hasn't it? Yeah, massively. I don't need no cover called I don't need no doctor. There are two. There are two covers on this album, and the other one's very good. That's all I'll say. It's an interesting choice for a cover. It's in an interesting place in the album because there are better songs that would have carried that momentum from the opener through. But it is where it is. But it does give way to another track that, in my view, is again typical classic Wasp. Yeah probably should have gone second should have followed up yeah i'm nasty yeah it's, just, it's yeah. i think i mean i love that unashamed for those about to rock intro but it's um yes. a really addictive number i think i i think it's a you know it, it's blackie at his best yeah this is all about blackie and you're going to keep saying it i know you are but this is still a good band behind him and you, you, i'm hearing enough especially in something like nine to five nasty you know that there's a great hook going on there's a great kind of you know pre-chorus build up the chorus is big it's bold it's yeah it's it's wasp. I love it. Yeah, it was very drum driven. This track, isn't it? But it's got a massive hook line. It's just, yeah. just gets in your yeah. head. And, and I'll give them that throughout this album. The vocal hooks you're talking about, the choruses, big sing along choruses, aren't they? It's full of those really catchy words. Yeah, because whatever you think about wasp and whatever you think about this particular album, and and I, I understand completely what you're both saying. I mean, I, I love the album, but I, I'm hopefully I'm with the benefit of you know 34 years down the line. Yeah, I can hear where it misses but it's just bloody good fun i know i know we're about to go into the rest of the city, but there are people out there thinking you know well they brought they, there's the elephant in the room here that they brought wasp to the party 1987 and at no point yet have they mentioned decline of western civilization which we're going to have to do at some point after. yes I mean, and probably before the end of this discussion yeah. <laughs> and from nine nine five nasty which is a big dirty grubby riff and a grubby lyrics we, we go into something that's i suppose slightly slightly more considered slightly more measured restless gypsy but again big hook line right you mean you mean wild child the sequel <laughs> it is yes fair enough it is uh, what, what 
what it does show is that um, when he when he when he reins it in, stops straining, he could sing. The boy could sing. I completely agree. More understated, I've put here. Understated, mm. awesome. mm. <laughs> which I prefer. But then I suppose that's not the point, is it? Because that's yeah. not wasp. I like this song. Yeah, it starts with a night, nice atmospheric guitar. Once the vocals come in, and a small reference to the decline of Western civilization interview. I, I, I don't know whether at this point Chris Holmes was so drunk all the time he couldn't really play guitar that well, and so resorted to single bar chords, which a lot of these songs seem to have over under Blackie's Blackie Lawless's vocals. I was going to say the, the, the evidence from the documentary would suggest he was at a bad time in his life. Certainly, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was a mess. I was looking back and going through Wikipedia and just looking at the various lineups through the years. And I was absolutely amazed to find that he was a member of the band, an active contributing member of the band for a long time before he took a sabbatical from it because he was all over the shop. But I'll give I'll give Wasp this or give Blackie this. Restless Gypsy is a lot more measured, a lot more considered, a lot more introspective. This is a really, I think, a really strong song. And it's it's not an out and out rocker. It is it's more melodic and it's it's based more on more on melody and harmony than you know most of the the rest of the stuff they've done. So he can write as well. Well, do you think it's a bit of a turning point because the next album, Headless Children, was I think a lot more considered, had a lot more variety on it, a lot more depth in terms of the the songs and the songwriter. So do you think this was a starting point towards that? Because I, I do. Do feel with Wasp that they're almost once they'd established that brand, that shock rock brand, they felt they had to live up to it. And I think, therefore, on this album, did that desire to live up to that brand come at the expense of the music? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? Did, did the brand consume their ability to make the records that they should have been making? Yeah, probably. But to, to go to your point about was this a turning point? I think it absolutely was because Restless Gypsy wouldn't be out of place on Headless Children. Mantronic wouldn't. King of Sodom and Gomorrah wouldn't. Yeah, there, there are three, four, maybe even five songs on this album. If they turned up on Headless Children, you'd have been quite happy. Yeah, none of them were going to be on the debut album, were they? They had it. They they had it all, and they were evolving. And no, no, no one minds bands trying to do something different. I mean, if they'd have done Wasp five times over, I'd have been delighted. You know, it's it's a brilliant album, and if they'd have fallen into the ACDC trap of you know, re- repeating an album time and time again, then, you know, it might have been a happy bunny because that first album was sensational. But I've got no criticism of the way they tried to go here. And that's why I don't quite understand Lawless's criticism or self-criticism of, of, of this product at all. I know, critically, the acclaim is mixed. And again, well, I mean, that, that's fine. People have different views. I haven't got a problem with that at all. Um, but I don't quite get why Blackie is, is so bitter towards it because it's better than that. Yeah, I also wonder, you know, th- this whole album is more hair metal than hard rock, heavy metal. I wonder if it, I, I just wonder maybe, was it a year too early? If they'd released it in 87 with everything else that was going on, you know, with Slippery had kind of started the ball rolling. But we've gone, that's a really good hair metal album, isn't it? One interesting thing about this, sort of where were they in terms of what they wanted to be as a band? Uh, the, the comparison between Restless Gypsy and uh, the song that follows it, True From The Hip, they actually start pretty much identically in terms of the initial song structure and and, e- and even the, the, sort of the vocal sequences. You can actually sing one to the other, but you've got Restless Gypsy is, is more understated, whereas True From The Hip obviously is 
absolute wasp. So same underlying music. Let, let's stick a different set of lyrics under the over yeah. the top. <laughs> yeah, it was total filth. Shoot from the hip, isn't it? Absolute filth. Um, I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's a, guilty, it's a guilty pleasure, isn't it? We shouldn't be liking it as much as we do at our age, but it's um, yeah, it's track of the album for me. It's an absolute banger, and just so wrong <laughs> for, for saying that. Just some of the analogies that he gets through. Put my gun in your velvet holster. Yeah. Just, just genius. Absolutely yeah. genius, yeah. and yeah, yeah. I feel That's a bit from Yeah, I, I, I find it tiresome. He went, it, he went too far. I mean, it, it, he's obviously sat down with the idea. I'm going to take Love Gun to another level, and he sat down with his cock in one hand and a thesaurus in the other. <laughs> God, you're such honestly. You're, you're, it's, honestly, it's like doing a podcast with Mary Whitehouse sometimes. Yes, <laughs> right. We we do a couple of weeks talking about the PMRC or whatever they're called, and, and lo and behold. We've got one in the room. Exactly. Yeah. No, you can't get. I mean, yeah. I just. I, I love it. I, tiresome. It's tiresome if you. I guess it's tiresome if you're looking for something with a little more depth. Yes. But yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Um, and also, that's got a massive hook line in it as well. It's a really catchy song, and it closes outside one as well. So it's a good way to end side one for me. But I'm, I'm thinking maybe, Richard, you disagree. It's okay. Away from Mary Whitehouse and the PMRC, the PMRC would have been more successful if rather than uh, got um, insulted by uh, Wasp, they just looked at him and went, really? So in old money, we'd be flicking the record over and uh, the vinyl over and we would put the needle at the beginning, and we would come to I'm Alive. What do we think of this? It's got a start, for me, very reminiscent of I Was Made For Loving You by Kiss. There, there are, I think there are a lot of Kiss motifs in a lot of what Wasp do. There's a danger, isn't there, that when we talk about Wasp, we collectively, not just the three of us, but broadly, we see them as a sub-Kiss brand, that they're trying to do the same kind of stuff, but maybe we're not quite as much panache or style or technical skill or commercial awareness that probably does them an injustice but there is a lot of kiss in what they do just in terms of trying to write big hooky anthems that's not something that's unique to those two bands i've never i've never even i've never even considered that i've never even thought about you know wasp as a sort of substandard or doppelganger of kiss i've never even put the two together if i'm honest no i I haven't looked at them that way either but i think that's that is that is an accusation that's been leveled at them in the past Mm. and i think you if you want to sit and go can you hear some kiss in what they do you can if you're looking for it you'll find it i know i love i love i'm alive i think it thunders along at a right old rate i'm out on the road i'm out on the road somewhere and um i'm glad to be there yeah good song it's okay for me i think it's a good start but it doesn't really go anywhere perhaps the difference between me listening to this album this week and, and you two is i'm trying to read too much into it but i still think they could have done more with the songs i listened to the first couple of albums quickly and then the headless children and i just felt that the songwriter on this album was quite lazy but it's disposed of the lyrical content is disposed it is it's it's bubblegum isn't it and the question i suppose is are we happy to have a bit of our old bubblegum in our lives for 46 minutes or whatever it is and i am you know i'm not looking for anything more than what they're giving me in the end if i want something deep i'll go and listen to pink floyd or rush or blue oyster cult you know yeah which is how i feel about kiss i'm sure you boys are pretty much the same i mean it's um I've never, I've never, uh, as Richard said, he's you know he's given this a right good study up over the last seven days. 
I've never given Wasp the remotest bit of thought because that's just there's nothing about them to think about. I just stick them on the turntable, smile, bang my head where where appropriate, and crack on. And and, and nothing changes. I'm I'm just tapping my feet now. So uh, I'm alive. Another cashmere in the fact in the sense it doesn't go anywhere um, <laughs> comes to an end, and we go into the second cover on the album, which is a. Uriah Heat standard, easy living. Yeah, this is this is the pick of the two covers by some distance. This is a, a little piece of magic. It flows along at pace. Again, Blackie just bringing his vocals down a notch or two, and that's where I like him to be. And yeah, it just rolls and rolls and rolls along. I think it's fantastic. I'm getting indifference from the, the other corner of the room. The original for this is absolutely fantastic. From Demons and Wizards, we've got to get some Uriah Heap on a podcast soon, I think. It's an okay cover but it's inferior by quite a long way in my view to the original they tried to squeeze some organ in to make it sound a little bit more like Uriah Heap you've turned into Blackie Lawless he tried to squeeze an organ in (laughs) (laughs) very good it's still the best structured song on the album but that's because it was written by somebody else (sighs) oh yeah yeah I thought it was it's a good song but unfortunately then I listened to the original I I have to confess I've not heard the original you don't need to Steve you don't need to The the only one you need to worry about is right here. Yeah, here, here. And I don't even know why I'm saying here, here, but I'm sure that's right. Now, the Uriah Heap version is, is awesome, actually. So the Uriah Heap cover of Easy Living is followed by <sighs> Sweet Cheetah. Uh, and that's Cheetah with a big H. Yes, with a big cat. Not a, a an act of betrayal. I haven't yet heard a song on this album, with the possible exception of I Don't Need No Doctor, that makes me want to pick the needle up and move it a centimetre. No, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's like a stick of rock, isn't it? It just says the same all the way through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is as close to a love song from Wasp, but it nothing changes it's it's still them doing what they do yeah steve riley's drums we haven't talked about that i think this is the last time he was he was with the band wasn't it it's um yeah just driving it along because he was replaced by frankie benali wasn't he who we lost quite recently didn't we mm. it's carried by the drums and vocals this really really do like his drumming again no no real riffs to speak of for me quite formulaic really it's it's, it's fine so all right so that's the second or third time that we've talked about the absence of a riff in the album is that is that the problem with this album for you then it seems to be a theme doesn't it through through the the 10 songs yeah because again i listened to the albums before this and um and after and to your point you made earlier with blackie producing this and I, uh, I know the vocals and and the sing along are so important to what Wasp do. But I, as a result, I think the the songs are emptier. I mean, so many of these songs. I'm sorry to be critical, but so many of these songs are just great big long single chords underpinning uh, a line of Blackie's vocal. First of all, don't apologise for being critical. Surely that's why we're here. I hadn't actually noticed the absence of the guitars in it. But you're right. You're absolutely right. I don't think it for me. Don't, I, I don't think it makes difference. It doesn't diminish my enjoyment of the album in the slightest. But if you compare this to The Headless Children, where Holmes is all over it, yeah, I completely, completely see what you're saying. It's the, par- it's the paradox of enjoying this album so much, Mark, that we've listened to it for 35 years without actually, actually ever listening to it. 
Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? but it says it says a lot about what you want from the album, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So yeah. if you if you judge the album in the context of what you expect, it's a fabulous album. If you judge it in the context of technically in other company, how does it fare? It suffers quite a lot. It's an interesting album in that sense, I guess. So a bit of acoustic guitar gets us from uh, Sweet Cheetah to Mantronic, uh, which is, to me, a bit like, it's almost like a sister piece or a sibling piece to um, Manimal from Live in the Raw. Got a great, great riff on it. I mean, we talk about the absence of Chris Holmes. He's here now. He's turned up. He's emerged He's emerged from his inflatable chair, isn't he, on the pool and uh, ready to roll. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that these last three tracks, certainly the last two, they're, they're almost afterthoughts aren't there this is the danger of a 12 track album where the start of that, in in my humble opinion it kind of runs out of steam a little bit I don't, this is a bit unfair yeah i like the start of of this um the, the way it builds as you say that there's a there's a really good riff there and it does seem still to be there just in the chorus but it's so low in the mix you can't actually hear it and it's such a shame because it's a really really good riff just before the guitar solo there's a there's a nice break the riff comes in again at the end which which i like and the other thing i noticed on on this song is like a number on the album is a load have a really long fade out a few only few songs on this album actually finish and when they finish they finish really well i don't know well i was going to say exactly that actually which i i think there sometimes when a track fades i feel like it's because they haven't quite worked out how to how to finish it and i wonder whether the ones that fade i wonder whether they turn up in the live set well they might have worked out how to do it by now maybe yes true so penultimate track on the album, King of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is as wasp a title as you're ever going to get. I absolutely love this song. It's uh, it's a bit old school, isn't it? It reminds me of something. Uh, Great White, stick it. It reminds me of Great White, but it's very old school. It's very heavy metal, that opening. Another great riff that, that starts and then, and then fades into single chords. Um, sorry, throughout this album, these would have all have been better songs. Um, had there been more guitar. I, I watched a number of interviews with Blackie and uh, Chris Holmes together, and, and Chris Holmes doesn't get a word in edgeways. <laughs> so I don't know if it was the same in the studio. It probably um, is, isn't it? But I, I, do you know what I suspect? It's, it's awful to say it because I don't know, and I'm speculating that's never really fair, is it? But I suspect Chris Holmes was being carried through this. I mean, he's there physically, but musically, I, I just wonder whether he just wasn't in a place where he could deliver what he might otherwise have done. There is a video on YouTube where Chris revisits the same pool interview in recent years. He's asked the same questions by, I think it's his wife, which he answers as honestly as the previous time. He's not drunk because he says that he gave up the booze in 1996 and he's been dry since then he said he you know, was one reason why he's he survived because he, he finally did in mid 90s give it all up but do you know what good for him because he's, he's a, a wonderful guitarist on his day he helped write this song didn't he one of several on this album one of several throughout the boss's career and, and he went on to do you know have a solo career until quite recently i think and was writing his own stuff so the, the man's not without talent move on a song too far I would say the rock rolls on. There, there are two songs on this on this album that I think are below par, and this is one of them. It's a bit of a repeat of Electric Circus for me in terms of the structure. Well, I refer the gentleman to my previous comments. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I agree, they, agree with everything you said. 
But if they'd called it Inside the Electric Circus Brackets Reprise, <laughs> that would have been quite clever. <laughs> and you'd have forgiven them? Yeah, I think I probably would at that point. Yeah. <laughs> okay, highs and lows, boys. Okay, so for me, the lows are at a tough call between I Don't Need No Doctor and The Rock Rolls On. I've given I Don't Need No Doctor six. So I'd imagine that I'll... Uh, That'll scoop up any um, any dog shit. And as for the top end of things, I just I just adore unashamedly, guiltily, I adore shooting the hit. For me, probably rock rolls on sweet cheetah vying for the bottom spot. And I think the two that are vying for the top spot are restless gypsy and the title track. And I'm kind of what what Steve said. That's that's me. I don't need no doctor. Rock rolls forever on. I'm quite happy listening to Blackie's Filth. Perfectly happy. Mindless and tiresome it may be, but it's fucking good fun. There we go. Inside the Electric Circus. Done, dusted. We'll rate them uh, later and then put them in the Hall of Fame, however temporarily that may be. So time for album number two on this odyssey through uh, three of the bands that appeared on the bill of Donington 1987. As you've just heard, we've dispensed with Wasp and Inside the Electric Circus. We've still got Cinderella's second album, Long Cold Winter to Come. But sandwiched between the two is Steve and the Thrax Among the Living. Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, and if we didn't have a podcast to do, I'd just let you two talk about this because I've got nothing to say. I just adore this. It's one of my all-time favourite albums, full stop. But we are contractually obliged to discuss it at some length, so therefore I will actually have the great pleasure of engaging in conversation with you two, who I'm sure you love it as much as I do, I don't know, but it's just a piece of genius. Let's run through some of the nuts and bolts of Among the Living, which is, as I say, by Anthrax. It's their third album, released in March 1987 on the dual Megaforce Island labels, uh, depending on where you were. 50 minutes long, produced, now then, produced by Eddie Kramer, who they adored, and he wanted to do this, so you'd think it was a marriage made in heaven. Oh, no, friends, it was anything but. And therein lies a great story. So recorded in, in Miami, mixed in the Bahamas, sounds like a holiday, was anything but. Price the stories. Um, it's the classic lineup. So you've got Joey Bella, Don on vocals, you've got Dan Spitz on the guitar, Scott Knott, Ian on guitar, Frank Bello on bass, Charlie Bonanti on drums. Highest UK chart position, it got to 18, it got to 62 in America, and they've always made the point that they love their European fan base and they love their British fan base. And when you hear figures like that, given they're an American band that you know did better in this country, says a lot, and that's why they love coming over. Went gold, did that within three years which is brilliant, and, you know, it's just a, a sensational, sensational piece of work. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. As anybody, as you guys know, and anybody who's listened to this will know, I don't always fare well with the faster side of uh, this music, but what I really like about Anthrax, I think, is the same thing that I really like about Metallica, that, that, they, that they're capable of slowing it all down and being absolutely brilliant when they do it and so whatever speed they're playing at there's a moment where you get to draw breath and just revel in huge riffs and and some really good hook lines again 
every week I wake up, you know, there, there are seven, you know, seven sleeps between podcasts. And in the mornings, I wake up with a different song that we've been listening to going around inside my head. And, you know, it's been no different. You know, there have been a couple of mornings where I've got up and I've had anthrax just ricocheting around my brain. It's been really good. Rich, have you, uh, have you enjoyed your week in the company of, uh, of the Thrax and Among the Living? Yes, I have. It, it's one of those defining albums, isn't it? It's got a beat per minute range of uh, between 100 and 210. <laughs> and what I love about Anthrax is even within each song, it's got about that kind of BPM range. I, as, as you both know, I prefer a slow, some of the slower tempos and uh, when it doesn't go completely mad. I think for me, there could be some times in this album where they didn't need to dial it up quite so much. Steve's shaking his head as I'm saying that. Of course he would. And I, but I loved it. They threw the kitchen sink at this. They had really thought, really, really thought about this in terms of how to put these songs together. The changes in tempo are just immense. But not once in listening through this album did I feel that, oh, they shouldn't have done that. Uh, so it's very, very well uh, put together and uh, yeah really enjoyed listening to it it's far more professional than the impression they give as human beings they just look like these sort of five bums out of new york city you know living the kind of rap thrash lifestyle and having fun and, and boy they were but they were a really really serious deal and um they knew how good they were and you got that in the conversations they were having with eddie kramer you know this this reverential producer they had working with them but they were in charge you know <laughs> yeah this guy's a god at the, at, the t at the desks, but they were saying, you know, this is how I want, this is how we want our album to be. It's got our name on it, and um, you know, we're going to be in charge of this gig. Uh, it was, it was a kind of crazy relationship, but it worked very well. And um, you know, the upshot was 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 a fantastic piece of work. I'll just put into a bit of context, if you like, because this is their th as I said, it's their third album, debut album, Fistful of Metal, just that debut album. It, it did what it said on the tin. Here we are, we're Anthrax. Second album was the interesting one, which is Spreading the Disease, which is a far more accomplished slab of work. Damned fast, that, that, that didn't change. Just a lot, lot better than, than Fistful of Metal. And some of the tracks on that, you know, we know are cl classic standards live, like um, ARR, Medusa, Madhouse, things like that. And they're Anthrax favourites forever and a day. But this was the one that... that took them, elevated them to a new level. And they didn't know it. They didn't know it at the time. They didn't know quite how big this album was going to be. And it, it just, it took them to a new height. They never did anything better. And that's not to dismiss anything they'd done before or previous, because the bar is set so stupendously high with this. Nothing was going to be as good. I think the, the, the thing that really strikes me about this album as well, and it comes back to the Eddie Kramer thing, is... This is a, a massive, massive, massive step up in production from spreading the disease, isn't it? Yeah, with, without any shadow of a doubt. I think they'd used, um, they'd try and, and produced it themselves, didn't they, spreading the disease, and used it, I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong, a guy called Carl Kennedy, who they'd worked with. But then they got the, the, the link with Kramer was through John Zazula, I think he was their manager. He wanted to do something with them. They were just massive Kiss fans, so they just knew of him, and they and they thought, well, this is this is rock royalty coming to to put it all together, and um, but the, the the relationship was very fraught because they said they said to Kramer, the one thing we don't want you to do is to do what everyone else is doing in the mid eighties. We don't want to become the next Def Leppard, so just don't overproduce the fucking thing. All right, just do not over fucking produce the thing. And then lo and behold, 
Eddie knows best, and that's exactly what he did. And they were furious, and 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 they had you know many many around, and they said you know just strip it all back, just strip it back. You know we, we want to hear our instruments, we want to hear us playing. This is you know we're not Def Leppard. So was he right, Kramer? The band might not have wanted a production quite as glossy as this, but was he right? Uh, no, I, don't, I think this didn't need overdubs. This didn't need you know reverbs. This just didn't need any of that. That's not what Anthrax are about. They're a, they're a club pub band. Right, they're, I mean they're bigger than that, of course. But you, you just want to hear them playing their music. Richard, you've got that look on your face of a of a man who knows his knows his production. No, I, I, I was going to ask a question about what did they end up with then. So this album, it, did Anthrax get their way or did Eddie Kramer? Well, what do you think? I think Anthrax, having heard it on vinyl. No, I think I think Kramer got his way. I don't think it's Pyromania, put it that way. It, it's very, very glossy though, isn't it? We're talking Pyromania or Hysteria here? Well, Hysteria. Think, Hysteria. Yeah. Hysteria was overproduced uh, to the point that it, it spoilt it. I mean, it made the vinyl sound like a cassette tape. On listening to this, I thought the production was very, very good. Incredibly balanced, considering how much shit was going on. There, there are you know, so many beats. I mean, it, um, Bernate's drum is so fast. I think he's a brilliant drummer. The, the, the riffs that the guitarists are chucking out and then all of the layers of the vocals on the top. And what's amazing is you can hear everything. I can't believe that they didn't get that without Kramer's know-how. Yeah, well, I agree. And also the, the, the danger is if you, if you don't allow Kramer to not dictate the conversation, but certainly impart any amount of knowledge and experience, you wind up with a kill them all, don't you? Um, or a doomsday for the deceiver, you know, which are fantastic for what they are, but production terms, they're, they're pretty rubbish. So maybe both got their way. Because yeah. I think cause, cause you, speak to, you listen to interviews with Scott Ian or Charlie Benante, and they seem really content with what happened. Yeah. So the five songs on side one uh, of this, Among the Living, uh, Caught in a Mosh, I Am the Law, NFL, Ethel Mukafessin, and A Skeleton in the Closet. Steve, talk us through Among the Living. Well, among the many, many interesting things about Among the Living, a rare example, indeed maybe the only one, answers on a postcard, please, of an album beginning lyrically with the title of the previous album, Go Figure People, Disease, Disease, Spreading the Disease. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I hold my hands up. This is Anthrax. Anthrax, there are three speeds, as Rich has, has alluded to. There are three speeds to anthrax in Among the Living. It's chuggingly fast, fast and fucking fast. And it's all in every track. That's the beauty. You spoke earlier, Mark, about the tempo changes. No one does tempo changes quite like anthrax. And I mean no one. And not only that, they do it with purpose. They do absolutely perfect purpose. Now, and I include Metallica in that. They're brutal and they're brilliant. And they do it a lot. And therefore, there is so much going on in their tracks. And Among the Living, which is just the beast of an opener, an intro that goes on for about a minute 30, and, and, and then we're off fast and heavy and bang. Boys, I, I've, I've just got nothing left to say. So lyrically, the content of Among the Living is about, uh, based on a novel by Stephen King called The Stand, in which Randall Flagg is the central protagonist. He's the walking dude in the song. I, I immediately warm to any band that uses Stephen King as a as source material because, to my mind, he is the greatest living writer of his generation. So um, that's all right by me, frankly. I love this song. Yeah, it's a brilliant start. 
you know, atmospheric and then the drums come in and then the riffs come in and it builds and then it just absolutely explodes. I, I calculated, I think, that there were more riffs in the first minute and a half of this song than on the whole of the Wasp album. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> just a word, though, about uh, beats per minute, okay? Just to give it some context. So, Richard, you were saying that the range of the BPM on this album is between 100 and 210. Just for context, Whiplash is 161 beats a minute, Metallica's Whiplash. So this is fucking fast. Yeah, and, be- and bear in mind who the songwriter is, Charlie Bonanti. You know, he could have given himself an easier ride, but nope. In a ra- in a rare breed, Rich, of, of, of including Neil Peart and not that many more, I wouldn't have thought, of um, chief songwriters of metal bands being a drummer. Yeah, very talented guy. Yeah, he plays. He's a guitarist, isn't he? He, he works out all the songs playing guitars. So he's, he, yeah, he's seriously, seriously gifted musician. Yeah, and no, that's a fantastic start to the album. An absolutely blinding start. Uh, so track two. So among the living, we're off and away, at, um, and we've seen plenty of what Anthrax have got to offer in terms of the tempo changes and the speed and the brutality and the, uh, and the great songwriting structure. Um, and then we come into Court in a Mosh, which, oddly enough, is arguably, and, you know, we're all critics, it's probably my least favourite track on the album, but that's not to say it's a bad track, far from it. Bonanti says the band absolutely adores Court in a Mosh, they love playing it, it's fun, it's an absolute crowd staple. Who who hasn't enjoyed going to an Anthrax concert, you know, and getting up and dirty with this it's ranked right up there by any authority who who loves metal and it, it's it's a massive crowd pleaser love it it put the smile on the face of any curmudgeon so rich it, it's no wonder they get off it uh, off on it when they're playing live because they'll just be looking into the pit and seeing the response and the reaction so in terms of a song that just absolutely connects a band with their audience I was looking up um, the uh, the definition. So moshing, also known as slam dancing or slamming, is a style of dance, dance, they say, in which participants push or slam into each other, typically performed to aggressive live music. Moshing usually happens in the centre of a crowd, generally closer to the stage, in an area called the, quote, pit. <laughs> it is intended to be energetic and full of body contact. <laughs> that, that's what this is. It's just... You can't dance this any other way, can you? No, you you absolutely can't. I'm really surprised that this is your least favourite on the album, though, Steve. Yeah, OK. Well, I just it's only because everything else is so sky high. Incidentally, Frank Bellow's bass opening on this, by the way, if if you don't mind, what a bass player. I mean, to, to, to do what he can do with the pace that's being set, phenomenal. And that bass intro to, to Court in a Mosh is... You know, priceless. It's a great song. It's got everything I love about Anthrax in it. It's got the speed. It's got the the slow chugging riff. It's got a really, really good hook line. And more than that, it gave us the title of episode six on the podcast. So, <laughs> yeah. Two words I've written down here in my notes are genre defining for this song. That whole sort of high energy and everything this song typifies, and what they intended when they wrote this. It's absolutely crazy stuff. Brilliant. I don't dislike it. All I would say is I'll be I'll be the decider of what defines a genre, okay? <laughs> Shall we go and meet the judge? Yes, let's. And so I know nothing about Judge Dredd. This is the track three. It's called I Am The Law. And for kids of the time, they got it. Mark, you're nodding your head. You know what's going on here. Yeah, only in the sense that obviously Judge Dredd, well-known comic 
strip hero portrayed on the silver screen by uh, Sly Stallone uh, around about this time, actually. A figure of authority in a dystopian future. It's got anthrax written all over it, really, hasn't it? You know, dystopian futures, a, a rule of law, rule of the gun. Perfect subject matter for this band, really. And it's such a good song as well. It's got it's got an almost kind of Native American, which, given what comes later, is interesting. Yeah. Drum yeah. beat through. Yeah, a warm-up. Bass and drums driving this song, particularly in the early parts, absolutely fantastic. The, the background is, so Judge Dredd was a character in a British comic, not an American comic, a British comic called 2000 AD. It first came out in 1997. Uh, and Scott Ian was a, is a massive comic fan, became a massive fan of 2000 AD. Couldn't get it in the States because it wasn't being imported. Bought it every time he came across to the UK. And he was obsessed with Judge Dredd because he just thought he was, quote, fucking cool, unquote. Yeah. No cheating. This was the first single off the album. What was on the B-side? That's a long enough pause for any podcast. Um, I'm the man. Ah. Probably the first time that we'd ever seriously had showcased that kind of rap thrash crossover. Scott Ian was a love with love this is rap. A couple of the other boys did as well. And they did infuse it. There was a lot of warmth and humor and that kind of thing in Anthrax's music, though unashamedly so. NFL and its evil Niku Fessin, which sounds like a piss take song was far from it because it's actually quite a serious song matter, uh, a subject matter, which was John Belushi, the the, the, the Hollywood actor who, who, who had died at this stage. I can't remember. And it was just, it was a commentary on, you know, make the best of your life. And they came up with an idea of a song called Nice Fucking Life, realised that was never going to get any radio airplay, so simply turned it round. It's just one of the great, great live chants, and it's just a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Again, this is really accessible stuff. This brought Anthrax to the masses because I bought Spreading the Disease because I kind of felt I had to. This was the first Anthrax album that I really enjoyed. When they started their... 1987 tour in New York City, in Rochester, in New York. They played in front of 500 people. That's where they were, you know, having done two decent albums and this was just being released or in the process of. And then four months later, they're playing in front of 70,000 people at Donington and blowing Metallica off the stage, by the way. And Evil Nicky Fessing was obviously played live, one of the nine tracks they played, and you get it. It's just an absolute crowd favourite. And even anyone who anyone who wouldn't have known about Amtrak at the time would have been joining in this by the end. No questions asked. So side one finishes off with a skeleton in the closet. A proper thrash finish. As ever, it's never quite as simple as that. There are the tempo changes within there, but yeah, this is um this is a belting end to side one. Well, you, you talk about Ethel Nukafestin being dark subject matter. This gets pretty this is pretty dark as well, based on Stephen King's short story Apt Pupil about a Nazi in America grooming a young kid. Well, I never knew. Well, well. Yeah, great, great story as well. Worth yeah. it. But yeah, it's a it's a really good thrash ending, isn't it? But but again, it's measured. This track really shows off Benanti's drumming. Uh, his, his double bass drum on this is absolutely insane. So fast, but so controlled. Always lots of comparisons between him and Mr. Ulrich, obviously. There's there's no contest in my view. Benante is just, just streets ahead. Just an absolutely fantastic drummer. Yeah, well, um, and while we're at it, can, can we forget Big Four 
bollocks as well. Can we forget any big four comparisons? Because there are three bands from over on the West Coast and then there are Anthrax. There's no big four at all. Anthrax, Anthrax are, are one of their own. It's just a nonsense, cheap, lazy, cliché basket of trash to put four bands in so it's meaningless. Nothing that Megadeth and Slayer, for example, have done comes anywhere close to this. There's no Megadeth have never come close to Anthrax. Well, close-ish, but yeah. Hand on heart, yeah. Ooh. Big call. Well, firstly, Steve, I assumed when you started going on about the Big Four and uh, dismissing it all was because Flotsam and Jetsam weren't in there. All I'll say to our listeners in is uh, stay tuned and let's see where Megadeth end up against Anthrax in the Hall of Fame because this <laughs> Let battle commence. And so into side two. Side two kicks off with, well, one of the most recognisable intros in the um, in the whole thrash canon, possibly the metal canon. Um, this is Indians with his trademark war drums. This song would not be written today on very many grounds um, in, in an era of cultural appropriation and racism, whatever. The, the irony being, of course, that this is this is a, a song written about the suffering of Native Americans in in the areas that they're shittily put in um, by American governments and drug abuse and drink within that community. But where Anthrax may have let themselves down in the in 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 modern culture is when Joey Belladonna wears a full headdress on stage, and towards the back end of this song, when there's a massive great cry of war dance, and then the band, and indeed everyone who's at the venue, starts dancing a la 1940s Western films of Indians round a pot. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. And I fucking love it. I think this is a brilliant song. All of the stuff you've just said aside, Steve, I think this typifies this album and, and Anthrax. It's melodic, it's heavy, it's fast, it's complex, it constantly changes. I think this is a brilliant song. Favourite track on the album, by some distance. It's it's just it's got everything in it. Almost faultless. That's your favourite track on the album. I've still got two, I've still got two that, that come very, very close because I'm just not tiring of any of this, and one of them is One World. There are just so, so many good things in this tr- going on in this track, as there are in all these tracks. You've got this beautiful sinister menacing intro that charlie bonanti drum roll and then bang off we're off again on another roller coaster riffs played at two play two paces all the way through chorus to die for oh yeah and talking of choruses we've not touched yet on um the backing vocals of this band i think are absolutely sensational that kind of um twisted sister style gangland kind of a kind of New York feel to, I was thinking uh, the, the best word is kind of ghetto, you know, that kind of, I, I don't know. It's just perfect for this band. I would prefer to it as backing shouting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, a, it's, an, it's an East Coast. I mean, you touched on it, Steve. It's an East Coast thing, isn't it? Because Twisted Sister, East Coast band, I think it is a real, it's a very New York thing. Yeah. Powerful weapon. Really, it so works. It so, so works. They're so good at these slower crunching riffs. They rely on speed too much, in my personal view. But that's, that's about everything they do. Because I, I, I think their slower stuff, their slower riffs are just so, so good. But, uh, I, yeah, I, I love this song too. The guitars at the start nearly ride the lightning by Metallica. So, you know, they were touring with them, weren't they, I think, just before this album? They were indeed, uh, they were. I wonder if something rubbed off. Hammersmith Odeon, 1986, with uh, Anthrax supporting Metallica. 
That's right. I think wasn't that Cliff Burton's last live last appearance before he died? I think. Well, it was certainly one of them. Yeah, and they, they dedicated this album to him, didn't they? Of course. Yeah, they did. So I, I take issue. Well, I don't take issue. I, I pose a question, I suppose. Richard, do you think that what you like about this album is actually because of the contrast? Those slower riffs are actually more striking because of what surrounds them. Because I think that's how I feel about it. Yes, I do. And I think the better songs are where they actually speed it up and slow it down and speed it up and slow it down. The songs that aren't so interesting for me is where there's almost a load of slow stuff and then you're just waiting it to go mad for the rest of the song. What I really like about Anthrax is when they, they speed it up and slow it down and really mix up the tempos. I mean, for example, you know, Indians, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, that, it's that structure all the way through it and that's why I like it so much. Because I think Joey Belladonna's vocal performance is also a moderator. That's what That also is what gives it the, the control. Joey Belladonna is never going to be ranked as anybody's technically anybody's best singer in the world but what he does on this album really well is is give some light and shade to the to the guitars yeah he was um he was micromanaged wasn't he throughout the early part of his career because i think scott ian wrote most of the lyrics or frank bellow and um would hand them to joey to do what he did with them and this was a, a very professional they're very forensic in how they went about their business this band you know there was nothing left to chance let's not just let joey write the lyrics we'll write the lyrics for him see what he does, and then, you know, it, it, we'll see if it works or not, and then we'll go again. Interesting process. One more thing about, about Joey, if it's worth mentioning, is he never tried to keep up with the rhythm. He's always sitting above it. But I think that's, that's what I was trying to say, was that his vocal style is, is a moderator in everything else that's going around. It gives it, it anchors everything else. And yeah, if that's planned, because I didn't know that, Steve, but if that's planned, that's really clever. And to the other contender for track of the album, ADI and Horror of It All. Horror of It All, introduced by this acoustic guitar intro. It's very novel anthrax, so they don't don't do this at all. And a lot of other thrash bands do, as we know. But so this stands out. It's a nice bit of acoustic guitar intro. But that is merely an hors d'oeuvre for the best minute and a half of your life. If the bomb goes off and I've got four minutes left, I will spend one and a half minutes of it listening to the riff that kicks off horror of it all. And I'm now going to listen to it and you two can talk about it. The riff at the start of horror of it is absolutely my point, that they are so good at riffs of this tempo. It is absolutely colossal. They're out Metallica, Metallica. I'm with you, Steve. I, I, I could die quite happily listening to this. It's astonishing. It's, it's, it's just pure brutality. And of, and, of course, it's backed up by the one of the best outros of the album as well. It, it, it's, it's not renowned for you know great guitar solos, but the way out of this track is is equally phenomenal in my views. I just think it's it's a little underrated gem stuck away at number nine and it's uh, it's just a fantastic track. like it a lot, but I've got one question for you. Does it need to be nearly eight minutes? Well, I don't know how long, how long is the, 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 the acoustic intro? Does it need to be? Oh, don't get me on that. We're onto Hammerhead territory again, aren't we? I mean, yeah, if it's that good, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yes, right. it does, in my view. I-, I could listen to this for double the time. You always know, don't you, when you've got a track on your hands, when you can't quite bring yourself to move it on. And Among the Living signs off with Imitation of Life. It's a, it's a, it's a really good footnote to a really, really 
top class album. Arguably, it's a letdown if they'd swapped them. I wasn't going to use the word letdown. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a slight anticlimax, isn't it? Yeah. If this had appeared somewhere else on the album, you'd have been quite happy. As yeah. given what we've just been listening to, you kind of feel a bit. Oh, yeah. That, that's yeah. almost side side two is almost perfect. Uh, it, but those first three tracks are just so off the scale. It, it's almost the best side two you'll ever come across. And then yeah. A trip up. It's not a bad song. The notes I've made is, after everything else, it's a bit more formulaic. Perfectly decent way to end the album is what I wrote down. In the whole, it's far, far more than a decent album. So, um, well, that's my view. And I'm sure you're about to tell me with your highs and lows, there will be no lows, Mark, just the highs. But um, no. Low in, you're more than welcome. Well, my ninth highest track on the album is Imitation of Life. And my first highest track on the album is and always will be Indians. Those two, for me, Imitation of Life, least Indians most. With your Imitation of Life and horror of it all. But the, the score, the scores are insanely high. It's, it's, you know, I'm not going to spoiler alert. It's scored well over eight on average for me this album, and um, it will always, it will always have a soft spot for me. It's, it's in my top five albums of all time, and always will be. So two albums down: Anthrax, Among the Living, and Wasps, Inside the Electric Circus. Dealt with. So we've enjoyed two albums so far on our reflective of. Castle Donington's Monsters of Rock in 1987. Opening the bill that day were Cinderella. Closing the show this time is Cinderella with Rich and Long Cold Winter. Opening album sleeve notes. So yes, Cinderella, Long Cold Winter. So start with the facts. It was their second studio album recorded uh, between 1987 and 1988 at Bearsville Studios in New York. It was produced by Andy Johns, who I'm sure we'll talk a bit about in a little while, with Tom Kafer and Eric Brittingham from the band. And it was released on May the 21st, 1988, on Mercury Records in the US and Vertigo Records in Europe. Playing on the album for the band were Tom Kafer on guitar, vocals, harmonica, and other stuff. Jeff Labar on guitars, Eric Brittingham on bass, and credited on drums, we'll come back to this, was Fred Curry. The songs that we're going to go through tonight, uh, number one, Bad Seamstress Blues and Falling Apart of the Themes, uh, two, Gypsy Road, three, Don't Know Where You Got Till It's Gone, track four, The Last Mile, track five, Second Wind, track six, the title track, Long Cold Winter, track seven, If You Don't Like It, Track eight, Coming Home. Track nine, Fire and Ice. And the final track was Take Me Back. All of them were written by uh, Tom Kafer. Additionally, uh, Brittingham joined him to write If You Don't Like It. A few singles came off it. Gypsy Road, Don't Know What You've Got, and a couple of others. And the album signalled a move away from sort of the more glammy style of their first album and much more to a straight ahead blues rock i didn't know much about this album i'd heard a couple of tracks off it uh, but it was mark many 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 years ago play this for me one night when we were exchanging our music and i absolutely loved it so that's why i had to choose it for this evening's episode gents your memories of this yeah so this is where you have to stay very professional in 
the world of Enter Sadmen because um, Cinderella aren't a go-to band for me, haven't been for Donkey's years. So uh, when I was revisiting this, I had to remind myself of, I thought, you know what? I remember I loved Night Songs. I loved their debut album. And the first thing I do, we're doing Long Cold, what do I do? I go and listen to Night Songs again just to remind me of how, how much I adored it. And I did. And there's some great songs on there. And it, 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 two or three of those tracks off there crop up on Spotify playlists of mine. Great album. Don't play it anywhere near enough. And reminded me of quite how good it was. And I never quite got that same sense of warmth um, with Long Cold Winter. I loved Night Songs to bit. Long Cold Winter I don't love in anywhere near the same degree. And it's probably rich with the point you've made. It is a different direction. And there was quite a long gap between the two albums, I think. Um, well, in relative terms. And that's why. So I've got to stay professional about it. I've got to assess this album for what it is and not what went before. And, you know, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of good stuff on this album. And I think there's a couple of real duffs. That's my honest view. That's really interesting. When I played this album to you, Richard, I, it had been out for seven years, I think. I bought this when it came out. I was really looking forward to it and really liked it at the time. I don't like it very much anymore. I've discovered. I think this is the absolute definition of a difficult second album. And I think they lost their way with it. Tom Kiefer on many interviews says Heartbreak Station is the band at its peak. Is it bollocks? The band at its peak was on Night Songs. And if Tom Kiefer was sitting around saying we felt like musically we were more accomplished on Heartbreak Station, fine. Okay. Uh, I don't personally, I don't agree, but I kind of understand that. To say that the band was at its peak on Heartbreak Station, no. And I think the problem with this album is not Cinderella's fault. I think it's the fault of Vertigo, Mercury. I think they interfered. They wanted, uh, we'll come and talk about it in a minute. They had their fingers all over this. And, I, and I, I'm going to ask you boys a question. If you were having to put together the definitive Cinderella album from the first two albums, so you, you're coming up with a 10-track album from the 20 songs that appeared on those two albums, which ones from Long Cold Winter would be on that album and which ones from Night Songs would you take off? Um, yeah, well, I'd take nobody's fool off because I, I never. That, that was the one. That was the one I was never that bothered about on um, on night songs. Other than that, I'd have the other nine from night songs. And give me some credit. Let's have a let's have a twelve track album because I put three of them from here on it. But um, all I would say, and before Rich, before Rich answers that question, what I would say is I think this was the album that Tom Kiefer wanted to write. This says more about Long Cold Winter. Says more about him as as an artist the night because he, he, he always gave the impression that he wanted to be that kind of bluesy rocker um which night songs wasn't maybe he was just trying to distance himself from what he hadn't initially wanted to do in the first place i don't know i'm thinking out loud Richard. it's a difficult question I'd, I'd have to come back to you i think they're two very different albums agreed i think it would be about 50 50 i agree there are some not very good songs on non cold winter but there are also some some crackers i don't think it was a difficult second album. I think there was a bit around what they needed to do for the time. But yes, yeah, so Tom was more comfortable going in that direction. Well then, fine. I can answer the question I asked because I've thought about it a lot over the week. There are two songs that I might consider putting onto a definitive Cinderella album from the 20 that, that were offered over the first two albums. And those are uh, the opening track, Falling Apart of the Seams and The Last Mile. And I wouldn't give house room to the other eight. I really liked this album at the time. Did I like it because I wanted to like it? I think so, probably. I really loved Night Songs. I really wanted to like Long Cold Winter. And so and so I did. And coming back to and I haven't played this end-to-end -end in, well, probably 25, 30 yeah, years. Yeah. 
Um, and it doesn't stand up. I think it's a really, really poor album. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's fascinating you say that. Yeah, but Wasp still does. Well, how does that work? I'll tell you how that. I'll tell you how that works. That works because Wasp were doing what Wasp had always done: bubble gum, disposable, like a Chinese meal. You eat it, and an hour later, you want another one. Cinderella had two things going against them for this album, personally. One is, I think Tom Kiefer took the band in a direction that the fans certainly didn't want it to go, because I think most Cinderella fans wanted Night Songs Part 2. And I think they had a record company crawling all over them to get hit singles and MTV videos because they wanted Cinderella to make money. They were a cash cow. If the legend is correct, Cinderella had been recommended to Mercury by John Bon Jovi. They'd been tearing up on the East Coast, gigging around, got a really big following. They were the big thing in 1986. And Night Songs was the album that nobody was forcing Tom Kiefer at gunpoint to make Night Songs against his will. So clearly, as a band, they had set out on that path in 1986 or pre-1986, with a uh, roster of songs that that ultimately the, the best of the bunch made it onto their debut album. Suddenly, two years later, they're serious musicians trying to distance themselves from the very genre that had made them stars. I just think it was a mistake. I'm not saying this to be contrary. I, I, I wanted to like Long Cold Winter as much this time as I did 25 years ago, and I just don't. Okay, well, we better get into it. Otherwise, we'll... Uh, yes, otherwise be all night. We'll album in the introduction, wouldn't we? <laughs> So the album opens track one with the Bad Seamstress Blues, uh, which I presume is just the bit on the steel guitar, and then uh, obviously into Falling Apart at Seams. Great opener for me. When the bass drum kicks in, let's go, boys, and the whole thing just kicks off. And it's just such a hooky track in terms of the riffs, in terms of the vocals. Great sing-along, really good fun. Yeah, it's a, it's a super starter. I'm sure I heard that intro from Lillard Skinner earlier in the, earlier in the End Sad Men playlist, but early illustration of something different, early illustration of Keith Royce had an interview that he was after a more layered sound than on night songs, and there's, yeah, you've got the acoustic guitar, you can hear it, you've got the harmonica, you can hear it, you've got other percussion going on that you can hear. It's all instrumentally nice and different, and then bang, you're away, laid-back intro, smack in the face, massive riff and trademark Cinderella Rock that's what they should have the TM by this is what they do this is a great opening track I haven't got any sort of problem with this if you put this on night songs I'd have been very happy very happy really really good hooky hook lines great riff lovely harmonies absolutely nothing wrong with it at all Track two is Gypsy Road. It's an instantly recognisable riff, real unique riff. And then Tom comes in with a few words about his vocal style because he's stretching on this, wasn't he, isn't he? And we've had a week, I think, where we'd agree all three vocalists aren't the best in the world. I think both Tom Kiefer and Blackie Lawless are, are a bit Marmite in terms of they really are generally tend to sing at the top end of their own. Joey seems to work out where <laughs> he doesn't need to go and keeps it under control a bit. But still, this illustrates the production of this album. is fantastic. Super catchy chorus, good riff. Yeah, love this. I was going to save my analysis of Tom Keeper's voice till the next song. Don't know what you got. I will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep holding my views on that. I like Gypsy Road a lot. I think it's um, Keeper's very proud of it. I know that. Something to do with the chord structure, being more blues than glam. His words, not mine. I don't understand what he's talking about all beyond me but he is a blues artist there's a nice blues and rock blend going on here it's a good good beat good rhythm um at this point all's well all's well in the long cold winter world yeah it's a it's 
a long hot summer, not a long cold winter at this point. Feeling very warm towards the album and the break in the middle of it. Solo's brilliant. Again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Gypsy Road and as a you know track two you're kind of thinking this is great yeah we've got another monster album from a band that were just great and then winds it back down and winds it back up oh it's fab fab song track three side one don't know what you've got till it's i know what they got they got a fucking stinker on their hands that's what they got Jesus Christ! This is just appalling. This this should not this should not have been done. This should just should not have. It's such a lame number, and this is where Kiefer's vocal strain. I mean, it's it's a terrible song anyway. But and he murders it in the hands of someone like say Danny Vaughan or, or, or John Bon Jovi, Dave Menachetti. This works better. It's still shit, but it works better. I mean, it's a nicely written song. It's not a rock song. Shouldn't be on here. And his voice doesn't do it any favors whatsoever. Or it doesn't do his voice any favors. Whichever way around, it's not much fun. I feel feel the same way about this as I do about Poison's Every Rose. It's vanilla, but you're licking it and licking it, and then you find there's shit in the middle of it. It's just yeah. awful, yeah. awful stuff. They've never. This hasn't happened on night songs. We haven't had one. They talk about nobody's fool. Forget that. This is this is the first time we've seen anything like this, and it's just it's so misplaced, so miscalculated. It's it's their highest ever charting single. It made them rich. What do I know? Uh, and that's it, isn't it? But but it's it's the record company. This is this has got the record company's hand fingerprints all over it. Because is anybody really telling me that this is what Tom Kiefer wants to write? That this is what he wants to be remembered for? I don't believe that. He's a much better songwriter than this. Yeah, it, it's that classic mid-80s power metal ballad, isn't it? it it's okay. Uh, I don't know why he didn't drop it an octave. I suppose it's his vocal style was to sing on the on the edge of it, but I agree with Steve that he is stretching to the point that you go, a bit. I disagree with the two of you in terms of, yeah, do songs like this belong on these kinds of albums? It, it was this time, mid-80s, these songs existed. And who knows they didn't want to write a song like this? No, um, it's my opinion. Left to his own devices, I don't think he'll have written this song. That's what I'm saying. It's mm. my opinion. Okay. I don't think you would. I'd, and and the fact that there were songs like this, and there were, there were plenty of them around this type of music at the time, doesn't excuse it. There's a similar song on Slippery When Wet as well, Never Say Goodbye, which is absolutely shocking. So every album had one. Does that make it all right? No, it doesn't. Yeah, and, and the point is Cinderella hadn't done one, had they, on the first album? So that's what, that's what made it slightly different. And yeah, Bon Jovi were doing it all the time, chucking out this rubbish. I just When I first heard this, I didn't expect it from Cinderella, but, you know, it is what it is which isn't very good. But they pull it back, don't they? This is, for me, is the best song on the album. Absolutely adore this song. So we're now talking about track four on side one, which is The Last Mile. Great intro into a big riff. That And it's, that's kind of hop, skip and a jump singing style that Kiefer does well through the verses. This is what Cinderella are all about. That lovely, brilliantly harmonic pre-chorus. Then the peach of a chorus real sing-along backing vocals are everything and they were with this lot this could have sat alongside push push or somebody save me hell on wheels you name them this could have sat in there no worries great song for me this is in the same ballpark as the one that went before it's just that it's, it's a better song and it's executed brilliantly mm. but they are still much slower tempo not necessarily not ballads but this is not falling apart the seams so this is this for me is tom Kiefer 
at his best. Brilliant songwriting. This is a, a an open top car going fast along a long straight road, isn't it? It's, uh, is that? It's a summer song, isn't it? It's a yeah. big summer song. Yeah, big time. And the last miles followed at the end of side one by second wind. I think it's a decent way to end a side one. It's, it's fine. Again, I like the tempo. I like the shift, the slowdown in the choruses. Yeah, perfectly, perfectly good song. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. It's um, probably a slightly too frantic, you know, for my taste, but it's all right. It's all right. Steve's got nothing. No, it is. You said it all. You said it all. It's, it's catchy. Yes, it's okay. I just, it's kind of poor man's hell on wheels. <laughs> yeah, I like I get a bit of that, I suppose, yeah. So we flip the album over and we're on to side two. And that starts with the title track of this album, Long Cold Winter. It's a slow blues, Gary Moore track. I quite enjoy listening to it. but A side two opener? No, it's more the type, kind of track that should be side one track four or side two track three, shouldn't it? Or on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Go on then, Mark. I don't like it. I, I, I think it's I think it's contrived and forced and cheesy and all over the shop. Even worse for me than don't know what you've got till it's gone. For me, this doesn't come from the heart. So I think this is a contrived song that they've constructed because they feel that that's what this album needs. I, I don't know. For me, it just feel, it just doesn't sit well, and I, I'm not sure I can even articulate properly why. But I like it less than I like. Don't know what you've got. Mm. Wow. Okay. I don't get that at all. What I get is Rod Stewart, and it's just beginning to piss me off. It's not a song that quite suits Keeper's vocals personally. I know he wants to be a blues singer. Howling Wolf wouldn't have tried this, and I don't think Keeper should either. He's better doing what we know him for. I don't think Tom Keeper is the blues singer he thinks he is. That's the problem. Yeah, well, does that as well. Again, it's how high you're singing, isn't it? He's trying to sing the blues like glam metal shrieker. Mm, yeah. So I don't know whether it's where, where he's pitching his voice or it's the, the key of the song. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel really bad because I really, really wanted to feel the same way about it as I believed I felt about this album all those years ago. But I just, I don't. I mean, I don't get what you're getting. So it, it, it's very difficult to comment. I think this album's up and down, but I've never thought about it being that contrived. Difficult how these things affect our interpretations. Yeah, I mean, it is a very, very inconsistent album because there are some extraordinary high points on it. We should talk about the drummers. Obviously, Fred Curry was credited with the drums in this album. And yeah, I suppose this is one thing where... I can understand where you're coming from, where they said that Fred wasn't quite ready. So they brought in Cozy Powell and Denny Carmacy. It's not clear who played on which track, but certainly from the demo, Cozy Powell played on most, I think. That must have been hard on Fred. And I suppose it would give an indication to the fact that a record company didn't want anything to get in the way of this becoming super duper. So, sorry, so why, why I didn't know any of this, why, why did they employ him in the first place? Because he was young, wasn't he? What was he, 20 years old or something? He joined the tour, I think, post-Night Songs. He was playing with them live. Right. They came back into the studio to record this album. Yeah. And it was judged, and Tom Kiefer still tells the same story. It was judged that Fred was, quote, not ready. Was that Kiefer's view? He sounds like quite a despotic figure, a bit of a sort of, um, who was the guy from Boston, kind of ran the show? Tom Schultz. Yeah, is there a little bit of that? Uh, don't know. I mean, back to Mark's point, was this Tom Kiefer? Was it the record company? Don't know. But 
I'd have been pretty hacked off if I was Fred. Yeah. If you're in a band, you're in a band, and actually you should have the support as a, mu- uh, as a musician to do what you do. Uh, so that was one strange thing about this album. Yeah. Well, frankly, yeah, it probably was at the time, probably really hard on Fred Curry. But I tell you what, I think he dodged a bullet. You know, he's probably a blessing in disguise. Well, he was credited, so he didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, but at least, but he knows that he, he had nothing to do with this. Well, if if he feels the same way about it as I do, which he probably doesn't, but if he did, then he'd take the view. Well, it's not my drums. Anyway, so Long Cold Winter is followed by If You Don't Like It. If you don't like it, I like it. It's all right. It's all right. It's got good riffs. Got a good groove underpinning the verse. I'm in a happier Cinderella place with this one, definitely. Oh, there's a little bit of Guns and Roses about it. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. If you don't like it, it's followed by track three, side two, which is coming home. And Steve, this doesn't work for you. It did. It, I tell you what, it doesn't. No. Um, again, in the hands of John Bon Jovi, it's it works better. It's a commercial barnstormer yet again. What do I know? Who am I to judge? I think it's. It's there. It's the kind of nobody's fool of this album, and it's okay. It's it doesn't excite me in any way, shape, or form. It does. It goes along at a lovely little tempo. Quite like that in it. But um, when he starts going high again, not for me. When he pulls it back in that opening verse, and and there's a lovely little musical play behind. I really like it. But then um, his voice does it for me. He does strain a lot in some of these songs doesn't he mm. as I was listening to these the albums this week I was trying to work out which out of Tom Kiefer's voice and Blackie Lawless's voice I like the least it's a big week when you say that Joey Belladonna's got the best voice out of the three yeah, absolutely yeah 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 you like this Rich I guess no I like it it's, it's fine for me this this is there every rose yeah Tom Kiefer's voice on the right stuff is really good I think I think he's a really good singer on the right stuff. There are a couple of songs on here where he's written a song for himself that's in the wrong key for his voice. Mm. And, and I don't understand that. And I think this is one of them. It's all a bit whiny. And then he's right at the top of his range. I don't know. There's no middle ground. So it's, as Steve says, certainly it's better than Don't Know What You've Got. And it's certainly not the worst album, uh, worst track on the album. It's okay. Yeah. It's when he goes up an octave or two, or, but if he kept it low, this would be a much better song. And, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? On night songs, he's comfortably within his range on most of those tracks. He spends an awful lot of time on this album right at the top of his register. And I, and I think that eventually that's a bit like a buzzsaw going off in your ear the whole time. And there comes a point where you just go, no, I've had enough now. And I've kind of, this is the point of the album where I've had enough. Yeah. But it's interesting. And here's the parallel. So does Blackie Lawless. Yes, he does. And, You're absolutely right. Uh, and that, you know, and I guess, Mark, you can play the trump card again around, well, Wasp is Wasp. But one of the problems with the Wasp album is that he's at the similar, at the top end of his range, and he's absolutely dominating every song, and there's nothing, no space for anything else. I think my answer to that would be, and, and I agree with you entirely, by the way, I think the difference between these two albums is that what Blackie Lawless has is the benefit of 10 really good, catchy tunes that go beyond his voice, that exist outside the, the, the context of his voice. Whereas these tracks on this album, in my ear, they need Tom Kiefer to be on it with the vocals in a way that Wasp's album doesn't require Blackie to sing particularly well because you're not really listening to Blackie. You're listening to the tune as a whole, or I am. Mm. So I 
know exactly what you're saying. I just think if Tom Kiefer doesn't work on these songs, the songs don't work. If Blackie Lawless doesn't work on Wasp songs, the songs still work. I think that's where I've got to with that. The Wasp brand of shock and naughtiness and over the top is disguising the fact that the songs are of a lower quality than the songs on this album. But that's the beauty of this. It's all subjective. Absolutely. I don't like this album. You probably don't like the Wasp album. That's what makes the world go round in the end, isn't it? I love everyone. Finishing the album, next to last track is Fire and Ice. Gentlemen, your thoughts on this? Nice, nice, steamy, steamy and proper rock. Like it. Good song. Would have sat really well on night songs. For me, this isn't so... The album starts to tail off for me with this song. It's not the best song on the album, that's for sure. It's a rock song, which is more than can be said for quite a few of the songs on this. (laughs) Um, So the album closes with More Cowbell and (laughs) Take Me Back. More Cowbell. Genius. It's a solid closer. A bit like Anthrax, I'd have swapped the last two, I think. It's fine. Perfectly decent song. Steve, any comments? I find it utterly unremarkable. You know, there's some good stuff on this album and that's that's not up there with them. Definitely not. I mean, it's got a good sing-along chorus. Perhaps that was the idea that they put it on last, you know. Yeah. Should we do highs and lows? Yeah, let's do it. Mark, why don't you start? Okay, so the low is Long Cold Winter and the high is The Last Mile. Yeah, Last Mile for me too. Um, I don't like, I actually don't like, um, don't know what you got. And for me, Take Me Back is my low and Falling Apart of the Seams is my high. Okay, so there we are. We end on contention, friction, conflict, no less. Cinderella are going to the ball with Richard and they've been turned into a pumpkin for me. (laughs) There you go. We need to score them. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so time to take a look at the scores for all of these albums. Uh, We'll score them in the same order that we reviewed them in the show. So we start with Wasp Inside the Electric Circus. Steve, you scored this as a 7.5 bits and pieces. Richard, you scored it sub 6, 5.8. No surprise there, uh, based on the conversation we had about it. And I scored it at 7.22 to give an average score for the album that it takes into the Hall of Fame with a 6.86364. Steve, Among the Living. Mm. Yeah, so Among the Living, second one we did, Anthrax, 1987. I gave it 8.16667. You gave it, spookily, 8.16667. Rich gave it 7.27 for a grand total of uh, 7.87. Rich? Yeah, so Cinderella got an overall total of 6.9, which was made up of Steve with a 7 dead, uh, Mark with a 6.65, and me with a 7.05. Well, I've been generous there. <laughs> Genuinely didn't expect that score above 6.5, but um, there you go. It is what it is. So, uh, yeah, I don't think any surprises there. Pretty much reflects the conversation we had, didn't it? Yeah, I guess the, the one surprise I've had is that I, I doubt we've had two jurors so far apart on an album as me and Rich were on uh, Inside the Electric Circus. 1.7 points difference. That's quite a lot, isn't it? It is. It is a lot. I think that's the lowest you've scored any album, isn't it, Richard? I'm not sure. It's close to where I scored uh, Vixen. Maybe that's got a big gulf between us, is it? <laughs> Very possibly, yes. As you can probably tell, it, it just didn't do enough for me musically okay well let's see where these uh, albums sit in the hall of fame it's time to put the rock in a hard place 
opening the Hall of Fame. Uh, we've now got 54 albums in our Hall of Fame, and the three editions this week enter as follows. What's been inside the Electric Circus come in at number 48. Just Above Vixen's debut album and slightly below Brian Cutler's Choice of Sad Wings of Destiny by Judas Priest. Not too many places above them. The other side of Sad Wings of Destiny are Cinderella with Long Cold Winter. So there's 6.9 just below Black Sabbath. Paranoid and Anthrax make the top 20. They come in at number 20, just above Ready and Willing Now by Whitesnake at 21 and one below Rising Rainbow at number 19. So what do we think about those positions gentlemen ludicrous anthrax make the top 20 as if it's some sort of surprise the surprise is they're not in the top five you bastard that's the surprise <laughs> great do you know what they find themselves behind fucking ronnie james dio yeah, yeah. <laughs> richard do you know if, if you'd come to me and said if you come to me first my the first thing i was going to say was steve i imagine you're a bit disappointed with that for anthrax well we've answered that question haven't we <laughs> It's a travesty. I quit. Oh, dear. Actually, I expected Among the Living to be to be higher than that, joking apart. Uh, I expected to, to be pushing the top ten, certainly. But I think you're the architect of that, Steve. I scored it, whatever I scored it, I can't remember now, seven point something, something, something. We both scored it 8.1 and something. Did we? Yeah. Yeah, you did. It was Richard that dragged it down. Otherwise, it would be flying high at about number... 12. Interestingly, though, Anthrax is the highest placed thrash album so far. Not for long. Not for long. I would suggest, which is not, not a, a judgment of Anthrax at all. I think we've got some um, some other monster albums to come, haven't we? I, I don't think that's overly surprising. Certainly, I, I, I'm not surprised to see Cinderella where they are, but then I wouldn't be, would I? I wasn't really expecting Wasp inside the Electric Circus. I was expecting it to be somewhere in the bottom third somewhere. So, yeah, that's not a huge surprise either. So, no, all good. I think, yet again, it, it vindicates the process, doesn't it? I think it does, despite a mid-loving Long Cold Wind. Winter, I think it's fair where it's ended up looking at the albums around it. When you look at where Anthrax is, brilliant album as it is, it's amongst the set of brilliant albums anyway. Rising, Rainbow, Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd, Strangers of the Night, UFO take up the three places above it. And this is what's going to get increasingly hard with this Hall of Fame about where some of these albums crowbar their way in but it's absolutely fascinating St- Steve will appreciate this there are in, in Formula 1 during qualifying there's, there's the whole thing around drivers at risk the driver at risk of qualifying there's a section of this isn't there where, where you go I think it's the top 20 probably are the are the only albums here that are, are guaranteed a place in the 100 at the moment and maybe not even guaranteed but a decent chance yeah I thought from the off that, that you'd have to clear 8 to get in the 100 and I still probably think that's the case because I I think that there will be many, many more albums which we all agree on are very, very good. I sensed we were there with Among the Living, you know, joking aside, um, but yeah, not quite to be. It's absolutely amazing, this. I mean, can I just read out numbers, numbers 21 to 30? 21, Ready and Willing, White Snake. 22, Native Sun, Strange Ways. 23, Highway to Hell, ACDC. 24, Kiss, Kiss. 25, Van Halen, Van Halen. 26, High Fidelity, Speedwagon. 27, Kill Em All by Metallica. 28, Physical Graffiti, Led Zeppelin, 29, Doomsday, The Deceiver by Flotsam and Jetsam, and 30, Ace of Spades, Motorhead. I mean, because they're all rubbish. 
Yeah. 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 Case albums. I know. Astonishing, isn't it? And it's only going to get harder. Yeah. There we go. 54 albums, more than 500 tracks now reviewed. And to quote Wasp, the rock rolls forever on. This is the Enter Sad Men podcast. So next week is a prelude to another special edition of the podcast that we've got coming up. An interview that we've done with Rock Goddess, which I can't wait to share, actually. Really looking forward to. And we've got a couple of episodes around that that sort of relate back to the conversation that we had with Julie and Jodie Turner. And yeah, should be good, shouldn't it, next week? Yeah, sorry, looking forward to it. So there we are. Another episode of the Enter Sad Men podcast is over we've done 17 episodes more than the three of us perhaps thought we might have got through uh, when we started this crazy journey and yeah it continues to be fascinating and great fun so um, we'll see you next week for another edition another journey down rocks highway all music clips featured in the enter sad men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.